Welcome to Paradas, a broadcast dedicated to helping Christians develop a biblical worldview, preparing us to think scripturally and soundly about our world today. I'm your host, Brian Nixon. Joining me on today's broadcast are my two co-hosts, Dr. Joseph Holden, author, pastor, and president of Veritas International University, and Professor Luke Betzner, pastor, author, and director of institutional effectiveness at Veritas International University. Welcome, gentlemen. Good to be with you both. Excited to talk about our topic today. Thank you, Brian. Glad to be here. Well, throughout this semester, our focus has been on apologetics. We've used Dr. Holden's book, Living Loud, as our springboard. On our last episode, we answered the question, is Jesus God? If you missed the episode, I encourage you to check it out. This week, we're answering the question, did Jesus rise from the dead? Well, many pundits have contested the resurrection of Jesus, coming up with alternative theories such as the stolen body theory, the hoax theory, the vision theory, and other such ideas. Because of the antagonism against the resurrection, one can conclude that Jesus' defeat of the grave is the core of Christian claims. In any battle, the enemy likes to attack the leader, the heart of the movement, disrupting momentum. And the resurrection is at the heart of Christian claims, therefore is attacked often. Put another way, the resurrection of Jesus is the central event that establishes the foundation for biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity stands or falls with the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection also positions Christianity from other religions and faiths, establishing a historical record of a miraculous event providing evidence and support for Jesus's claims and teachings. In other words, this is a huge topic. So like last time, we have a lot to cover. So Joe, let's begin with you and jump right in. Let's begin just by defining our terms. What exactly is a resurrection? Well, a resurrection is a Christian fundamental doctrine that says that when the body dies and is buried, it can rise again from the dead. It can stand up. In fact, the Greek word that's used, anastasis, comes from another Greek word, anastemi, and that refers to literally to stand up. So we're talking about Jesus's resurrection. That is the event in which Jesus was placed in the tomb, completely dead, not just fainted, and he rose again on the third day. So it's literally a coming back to life, but it's not just coming back to life because after all, in John chapter 11, we saw that Lazarus came back to life and Lazarus's coming back from the grave is a little bit different than Jesus's resurrection from the grave in that when you're resurrected, truly you receive a glorified body that 1 Corinthians 15 describes the characteristics of those bodies. It was placed in the ground in weakness, but it's raised in power. It dies in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It was uh, died in corruptibility, but it's raised in incorruptibility. It's died a mortal body, but it's raised an immortal body. And that means that there's changes in the body. There's not changes of the body. You see, changes in the body is resurrection, changes of the body is reincarnation. So Lazarus, on the other hand, is what we call a resuscitation 
of a dead person. Yes, Lazarus was thoroughly dead. The text tells us that he was several days in the tomb. And behold, even it could be stinking by now, according to Mary and Martha in John chapter 11. So why do we call one a resurrection, the other resuscitation? Well, Christ was the first fruits from the dead, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, and Christ would be the first with a glorified, resurrected body. And Lazarus, since he was uh, died of sickness before Christ rose from the, bed, the dead, he would be considered a resuscitation. Yes, he came back to life, but he came back to life in his same mortal body in which he died, whereas Christ came back to life in an immortal, glorified body. But it was the same body in which he died as well. Mm, so good. And it's it's important to clarify and define in terms of what resurrection is, as opposed to resuscitation, as you pointed out. It's it's very important. So let me let me go a little bit further. And Luke, I'll turn this one over to you, helping define our terms. So if Joe defined between resuscitation and resurrection, how does resurrection differ from, let's say, reincarnation? Absolutely. So there may be a little bit of a longer answer to this, but I'm just going to work through it as quickly as possible here. I think Joe's definition, uh, absolutely right on point, means to stand up, to stand up, to rise again, the idea here um, with the word resurrection. So the words themselves, much of the difference can be seen in those words, what they actually mean. So in resurrection, the body is typically transformed into a perfect version of what the body is supposed to be in the type of resurrection versus resuscitation. Paul states that it is a material change in 1 Corinthians 15. It's not a change from a human form to something else. It's the body itself experiencing a material change being reconstituted. And as also from what scripture has revealed, this specific action is only performed on human bodies. We don't have any information anywhere in scripture that resurrection is ubiquitous, but rather that is unique to human beings. It doesn't happen in the abstract. For a believer's, it is a direct fulfillment of the redemption of the body and the spirit in that they are made perfectly free from sin and thus from the power of death. And it cannot happen to those who have not died. Now, that's not to say that those who have not died cannot be redeemed, but those who have not died cannot be resurrected. It's something that requires there to be a death of the physical body first, which is why we go to such lengths to, to define what actually happened in the death of Christ. So there's also a resurrection of the damned prior to them going into judgment. This is mentioned several times in Scripture. They are two also raised and transformed bodies that cannot perish, but their end is different than that of the saved in that they have no spiritual connection to God, the only true source of life. The rejection of Christ has not removed the prospect of living in a body forever, but rather the absence of true life, redemption, and wholeness that is brought by it. So just to qualify what we're saying here, because I can imagine there's going to be objections, say, well, it says that the damned are going to be resurrected. Do they get a glorified body as well? The idea is they do have a material reconstitution of their body, but they are not considered to be any redeemed state because they have not escaped from the curse of death and sin, which is the important part of the resurrection of those who die in Christ. So there is a very clear bifurcation in Scripture about that. And then, of course, those who are resurrected that are um, not in Christ, there's then a com 
a complication beyond that of the eternal judgment in which they will take take part. Now, in the contrast, re reincarnation as a word, it directs someone immediately to the concept of putting something into a different body, a different incarnation, which is the idea of putting clothing upon with flesh. It is not a transformation as much as it is a migration of whatever constitute the self into another completely different format. It isn't limited to human beings in that teaching and therefore is not in any way, shape or form biblical in its understanding. In my opinion, it's sort of like playing in a, an existential shell game. After all the shuffling, maybe you'll come out on top. And furthermore, most importantly, it's not a removal of sin and death. In fact, the teaching of reincarnation teaches that death and migration last for what typically constitutes an indeterminate length of time and number of lives. Yet the scripture teaches that it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. There's no mention in scripture of previous lives, pre-existences, all of which would be necessary to know if we were to embrace the idea of reincarnation, which we do not. The scripture also speaks of souls under the altar in heaven that are waiting to rejoin their body. This is not an example of pre-existence, but it's rather post-body existence. God does not provide a new construct or a new life for them or put them into some other form. He tells them to wait until all is complete, and then will come the final resurrection. And that is that when their perfected spirit will rejoin their same body in a perfected form, which is largely something that, you know, people that are saying it's something other than that pre-existence, that derives largely from platonic thought and is centered in many Eastern cultures and religions. And then one final point, if I may, I know I'm going on a little long here, but I think this is so important based on what we just said to define these terms. There's a rather unsettling trend that's happening in Christian music where resurrection and salvation or conversion have been made interchangeable. Now, to be clear, resurrection as a part of redemption is only possible to those who are in Christ and who have died in him. But it's part of the end game, not the beginning. In other words, when we speak of getting saved, that is fundamentally different than being resurrected. There's a familiar song that says the resurrected king is resurrecting me or the voice of Jesus calling us out of the grave like Lazarus. And I'm so grateful that Joe had already just said this is not resurrection in the way that the Bible teaches it, as is true in, in salvation. That's part of our blessed hope that is yet to come and is not true of us now. And it is inappropriate to speak of salvation as resurrection for basically because it isn't. By affirming that idea that they're one and the same, we're undercutting the very truth we claim to stand on by make, making resurrection a solely spiritual act, which it clearly is not. The Baha'i faith and others speak of Christ's resurrection being spiritual in its understanding. We do not accept this for numerous reasons, not the least of which is that our redemption is not only to spiritual, it is, if it's only spiritual, then it's not a true redemption. It would violate scripture. When you come to Christ, you come into possession of salvation. You're translated from darkness to life, from life to death, spiritually. There's no physical element here. You're not resurrected, free from sin, perfected in holiness, or given a body that's impervious to death at that point. It is the point at which your spirit is given life, but it is not the point at which your body or spirit have been perfected. And I feel like it's very important to say this because of what the doctrine of resurrection entails and to distinguish this from the many other theological implications that would come from it. And so I think we ought to be preserving our correct doctrine in songs and not just our sermons.
Yeah, that's that's great. And that's a good, good point, Luke. And and thank you, Joe and Luke, for really defining our terms, you know, differentiating resurrection from reincarnation and other ideas. I think that's important for our listeners to understand. So now that we got our definition out of the way, let's turn our attention to history. And Joe, I'll turn it back to you. Um, is there really any historical evidence for the resurrection? I mean, obviously, we know Christians um, center around this event. Uh, we happen to be recording at the start of the Lent season, working our way up to Easter um, Sunday. But what kind of historical evidence? You know, did Jesus' resurrection occur in actual history? Or is it, like Luke said, you know, some believe more of a spiritual um, endeavor? Well, the good thing about the Christian faith and worldview is that we don't ask people to check their brain at the door when it comes to believing in things of history. And that's the same is true for Christianity. We have four distinct authors that serve as eyewitness reporters from the first century. They're Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And now in the terms of Mark and Luke, they are people who receive their information from firsthand eyewitnesses. Mark from Peter, and then Luke uh, interviewed people and eyewitnesses that saw these events, whereas Matthew and John were eyewitnesses of that resurrected Lord. So you have these primary sources that were compiled, they were put together, and the resurrection is the one of two miracles that are listed in all four Gospels. The other miracle was, of course, the feeding of the 5,000, but it's the resurrection that is prominent. And if it's prominent in all four, it must be very, very important. It's so important, Paul said, that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. And so his resurrection really demonstrated who he was. But then also, there's no written evidence that we have from the first century that refutes the resurrection of Christ. We, I mean, if you were going to look for some sources to see, okay, what kind of arguments were against it? Maybe people wrote something against the disciples' uh, gospels uh, to refute it and counteract it, but we have absolutely nothing from this time period. You would think if it was a hoax that somebody would write something against it. And then also to believe that the gospels weren't written by good eyewitnesses leaves uh, several questions unanswered. In fact, how could the apostles have succeeded in Jerusalem where these very events happened, his crucifixion and his resurrection? There would be too many people alive during that time and in the city to know if this was a hoax or that the gospels were just writing fiction. And But yet that's where they started, in Jerusalem. And their first converts were Jews in Jerusalem. Their first uh, missionaries were Jews and so forth. They preached the message of the resurrection in the very place where it happened. And that's not something that happens when you're a fraud. When you're a huckster, you go to a distant land and you start preaching your, your theory or you start sharing your hoax, but not in the very area where you've made up your story. Uh, the only other alternative is that these things really did happen, and it had a major impact. In Christ's resurrection body, 
is another piece of evidence. It's seen some 14 times in the New Testament by different people. Uh, you see Mary Magdalene see him in John chapter 20. There's Mary, the mother of James in Matthew 28. There's Salome and Joanna in Luke 24. I mean, the list just goes on and on. The two on the road to Emmaus, they touched him. And even a doubter, Thomas, in John chapter 20, falls down on his knees and says, my Lord and my God, after Jesus physically appeared to him after the resurrection. And so you have somebody um, like Jesus who has a glorified body, and you see this uh, proof text that Jesus even gives to the people who saw him and were having trouble believing it was him. In Luke 24, he says, a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have, Uh, handle me and see. In fact, bring me a piece of broiled fish. I'm going to go ahead and eat that so you know that I'm actually resurrected from the dead. So when it comes down to it, we have so much historical evidence, and that was just the tip of the iceberg, that if you choose to reject the eyewitness reports, such as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, you really have to reject all the eyewitness reports of events of ancient history. And that leaves you basically an agnostic about anything of the past in the ancient world. Uh, classics departments would have to shut down. You can no longer uh, want to pursue a degree in, in ancient history and anthropology and so forth, because after all, we wouldn't be able to know anything uh, from anybody who wrote something down. So, we have more than enough evidence and to leave people without a shadow of a doubt. Good, good, good insight there, Joe. But I'm going to be an antagonist here for a moment. And Luke, I'll turn this back to you. You know, Joe has mentioned the Gospels, specifically the Gospels as being a reliable um, marker for, for this evidence. So, Luke, are the Gospels really reliable? I mean, is is there enough reliability found within them to provide evidence for the resurrection? So Christians will will refer or will go to will refer to the Gospels. So my question does have to do with the resurrection, but maybe it also has to do with the reliability of the Gospels. So so I'll just ask it clearly again: Are the Gospels reliable guides to provide evidence? I think it's an absolutely essential question to to ask this, but I also want to be careful that we define our terms here. The colloquial idea of reliable is, is this something that sort of makes my mind up for me? Is this something I can feel good about just off the top when I hear these claims? Because what we typically find is people say, well, that's not reliable, but their standard of reliability from a colloquial standpoint is, is it believable? just on the surface? Like, does it not make any outrageous claims? And that's a very subjective judgment for most people. So I'd say when we use the word reliable, and I know you're doing this, Brian, you're using it from the historical critical standpoint that says, what have scholars judged is a sufficient criteria for reliability? And I would say the gospels pass that test with flying colors. In fact, there have been many people who are not of the Christian faith who have come to the faith or some who have just continued to write from an, an objective point of view, as, as loaded as that word is, but let's just say one that does not require personal faith 
to be able to evaluate the type of evidence that the Gospels constitute. And so we have eyewitness accounts that have been scrutinized from multiple perspectives, from the psychological perspective, from the forensic perspective, from the historical perspective, and more. And all of them hold up under that scrutiny as being a cohesive body of evidence that points to the sincerity of those who are making these claims. Joe mentioned some excellent parts where he's talking about they started this in the area where it actually was alleged to have happened. You don't do that. And, you know, other things such as these guys weren't just running a game that they gave up when there was pressure. They gave their lives for this. And so there's there's much to be said about how much can we know about how people know things and what they do when they are really convinced of these things. The Gospels, the Gospel writers, the various folks that were interviewed that carry over into the book of Acts, even the, the later writings of the Apostle Paul, all of them have the scholarly and rigorously evaluated boxes for genuineness checked. And so if you're going to accept any eyewitness material, the Gospels provide the perfect vehicle for that and should not be discounted simply because of the claims that are made, which is how it's typically evaluated. So I'd say, you know, there are also extra biblical sources like Josephus that we can go to to confirm that this was not just an internal narrative, even though we have four separate witnesses, uh, which would be the four evangelists. But you know, then we have statements like Paul, where he's saying, if Christ be not risen, we are of all men most miserable. So as you stated earlier, the resurrection is clearly the cornerstone of the faith. And I believe that Christians, regardless of whether they know all of the intricacies that we're discussing here, have every right to use the resurrection language as being free and unambiguous and saying, this is what the Bible teaches, and this is where we can stand confidently. Mm. So essentially, Joe is giving us the four Gospels as the historical evidence with Paul and other mentions in the New Testament. And what you're saying, Luke, is that these Gospels are reliable guides because they meet the criteria for reliability. And of course, in one of your books, um, Joe, the, the Harvest Handbook of Apologetics, you actually have some lawyers who weigh in on 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 this as well from a a trial standpoint and i know one of our mentors john work montgomery has also weighed in on this so the gospels are reliable guides so I, I i thank you for that luke so now that we have this historical aspect of the resurrection um taken care of let's now move to some of these theories i mentioned at the beginning and i'll turn it back to you joe you know many people throughout history have tried to give alternative understandings or views of what may have happened, usually in contrast to what the four Gospels clearly say did happen. So they come up with these theories. So, Joe, if you don't mind, give us some of these, these theories that skeptics try to explain away the resurrection, and, and how would you answer them? Well, first of all, I would instill confidence in the trustworthiness of the gospel, and Luke's answer was was very thorough. And I might add that the gospels have some of the tightest transmission gaps 
between the original and the first copy of the manuscript. You see, we can have confidence knowing the Gospels are telling the truth because they're first century documents. And that's what scares the liberal scholarship so much, is they want to push it back into the second century when nobody can consult with eyewitnesses or there's no more eyewitnesses that are left alive to uh, testify to the fact that Jesus rose again from the dead. So it's very important when we approach these alternative theories is to make the Gospels uh, prominent here because they are first century eyewitness testimonies. In fact, there is some 35 years between the end of the Gospel of John and the first copy manuscript that we have in our possession today. It's called the John Rylands Fragment, or P52. It's a little small fragment of John chapter 18 that's written on about a four-inch by four-inch papyrus, and it's only 35 years removed. And for an ancient document, those years are like a blink of an eye. It is so quick. And when we realize that there were no huge gaps between the manuscripts that we have today and the original writings of these Gospels, we find that there could be no embellishment, no collusion, at least it'll make it very difficult for those things to happen, because there were still people alive reading these Gospels that saw the events, and they could quickly squash any type of deviation from the eyewitness testimony from it. But with that said, Brian, There are a number, like a handful of various theories against the resurrection that have basically been uh, put down over the centuries. And one of them is called the conspiracy theory, where the disciples or the Roman guards stole the body. In fact, that's what's presented in the Gospel of Matthew, is that um, we'll just say that, uh, you know, that somebody stole the body, and um, we'll leave it at that. And if somebody comes asking about your job being guarding the the tomb, we'll we'll tell them uh, some story that will get you off the hook, ultimately. But the conspiracy theory doesn't work. Uh, The Romans didn't steal the body because those guards were under the pains of death sentence if they were to tamper with evidence like that body because it was sealed tomb. They were to guard it. Uh, If they didn't... uh, Uh, weren't faithful to their duty of guarding this tomb. They could uh, be flogged, scourged, imprisoned, and even uh, given the sentence of death. So the Romans had no desire to take the body. If they took the body, it could start a riot. It could uh, start making people uh, rise up with weapons and stuff because they were very polar uh, viewpoints regarding Jesus and who he was and his ministry and so forth. So the Romans had no motive to steal uh, the body. They wanted to keep peace and they wanted to fulfill their mission. Well, what about the disciples? They seem to have the motive, but uh, even them, that would be doing something contrary to what they taught, to not steal or deceive, and that would be a deception, ultimately. And are we to to believe that the disciples, uh, some ragtag fishermen came up and overpowered Roman guards that were fully equipped with weapons and and had full training? Uh, They knew how to kill people and defend themselves. They were the best ever in the history of mankind 
to go to war. So the conspiracy theory doesn't really float. But then there's the swoon theory that says Jesus fainted uh, on the cross. They took him down, put him in the tomb, and then later he revived and gained strength and then left the tomb. Uh, That's why the tomb is empty. Well, that couldn't be farther from the truth because the Roman government pronounced him dead. Uh, They didn't even have to break his legs because they saw he had already passed away. And they even thrust a spear into his heart and outflowed blood and water. That's a sure sign that the pericardium had ruptured, that he was completely dead at that time. And that also fails to take into account Jesus's condition when they put him in the tomb. He was not only dead, and even Tacitus, a Roman historian, said he was put to death under Pontius Pilate. It fails to take into consideration he was whipped, he was scourged, he was beaten and pummeled. He had hang on the cross from 9 in the morning till 3 p.m. in the afternoon, according to the Gospel of Mark. He had a crown of thorns on himself. He probably didn't eat the whole night of interrogation and so forth. He couldn't even carry the crossbeam to Golgotha when he was supposed to do so. Uh, They had to call Simon the Cyrene to carry it for him. He was so weak and almost at the point of death. So the, the... swoon theory that he fainted doesn't really hold much water. You're going to have Jesus who went through all that, move that stone away himself and crawl out of that tomb. Well, that's not going to happen. And then you have the hallucination theory that says, well, they thought they saw Jesus. We didn't really see him physically, but we maybe thought we saw him. We're seeing what we want to see. But ultimately, the hallucination theory is bunk as well because uh, people don't have mass hallucinations, especially over multiple areas with different people all at the same time and so forth. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 says there was 500 people who saw the Lord. Uh, You can ask psychologists today, people just do not have mass hallucinations. They're very rare. Hallucinations, even singularly, are very rare, and usually they're individual. And it doesn't explain the empty tomb, and it also doesn't explain uh, the personal testimonies of people touching him and seeing him physically. And then you have the wrong tomb theory, where they went to the wrong tomb. Uh, They couldn't find the right tomb because it was dark out. Well, that's just a feeble attempt to throw dispersions on the resurrection because it doesn't account for the empty tomb, number one. And secondly, it was Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. If they went in the dark and they couldn't find it, they can simply ask Joseph where the tomb was. He can lead them to his own tomb. And then finally, you have another theory, and the Muslims bring this forth and say that it wasn't Jesus who died on the cross. It was actually Judas or some other uh, personal figure because the Muslims believe that Jesus would never let a prophet of God, Jesus, die such an ignominious death you know, on the cross. And so they put forward this um, idea that's taken from the Quran. And we have a choice at this point. 
we can either believe the Muslims who are 600 years removed from the events of the first century when they bring their theory of substitution, or we can believe the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, the Apostle Paul, and over a dozen eyewitnesses that saw him. And Paul says there were 500 witnesses that saw him in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, I'll cast my vote with the early eyewitnesses during the time of the events themselves. So all these really crash and burn. They've got several problems. They don't answer the empty tomb. And certainly they don't account for all the evidence that even liberal scholars say uh, that is true. So good. And thanks for that summary, Joe. Very, very helpful. Well, Luke, I'm going to go back to you on on this question. And both you and Joe have kind of alluded to this in your various answers. But why is a physical resurrection important and not just a spiritual resurrection? And let me let me just uh, preface this by saying, you know, this debate has been going on for a long time. Um, you know, I think back to two centuries ago, not this century, or you know, but Albert Schweitzer. You know, there was this historical quest for Jesus, and everyone before him was saying that Jesus wasn't a historical figure. And Albert Schweitzer did all this amazing research and showed everyone, without a shadow of a doubt, Jesus was a historical figure and he was real. And everyone was like, yeah, this is great. But then Albert Schweitzer said, but when it comes to the resurrection, it was probably a spiritual resurrection. So though he looked at the historicity of Jesus Christ, he always, he stopped short of saying that Jesus actually physically rose from the dead and pointed it out as a spiritual resurrection. So why is it important for Christians, Bible-believing Orthodox Christians, to believe in a physical, literal resurrection and not just a spiritual resurrection? I love the way you predicated that question, Brian, because there is something that is often, unfortunately, often exercised in religious forums, and that is the idea of intangible claims. It's very easy, and several cults did this in the 19th century, where they said, Jesus is coming back. And then it didn't happen, so they said, oh, it was secret. Like, it was just this thing that nobody knew about, but it really happened. And this is not at all the way that Christianity approaches this claim. In the scriptures, effectively, it wasn't a validatable claim, could not have been considered an infallible proof, as Luke clearly says that it is, unless it was something that was able to be validated empirically. He's speaking in empirical terms. He's saying there's infallible proofs. Those end up not just being physical, tangible things, but appropriate deductions and derivations that can be made from the evidence that was displayed for very specific purposes, purposes that immediately were associated with the demonstration of that evidence, such as Joe had quoted earlier, where he was demonstrated to be the son of God by the resurrection from the dead. This is exactly like we know why these things were happening. So Christianity steps out with boldness with a physical claim of physical resurrection and eyewitnesses. So I'd, I'd say the biggest reason why Schweitzer and others of that particular persuasion are wrong is because the scripture speaks of physical sight observing, therefore saying that a spiritual resurrection, which we'll talk about in a second here, is not the same as an immaterial resurrection. 
invisible is not the same as being spiritual. Immaterial is not the same as being spiritual, although there are lexemes within those words that can constitute that. That's not the way that Scripture is using it in particular about the body of Christ. So on top of that, there's the complication that without a physical resurrection, as we talked about earlier, God's promises aren't fulfilled. It would mean that Jesus wasn't God because he didn't overcome death, the death of the body in particular, which is one of the promises that was made. And he even says this, that I will raise up this temple. And it says this he spake, mentioning the temple of his own body. So he's not talking about an immaterial resurrection. Our spirits obviously endure beyond our bodies in one of two places. But without the resurrection or reconstitution, our bodies do not. Romans 8.22 says this when it comes to the idea of redemption. And that's, we know the whole creation groaneth and travaileth together in pain until now. 23 says, and not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of our body. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, they spell out a lot of what this looks like. And so for those who have died, they will be reunited to their body that was laid to rest, albeit in a redeemed state, they'll be united. For those who are alive under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, they'll be redeemed in the moment. So we can't really choose to abandon the doctrine of redemption within the larger category of soteriology or salvation if our bodies are not redeemed in the way that the Bible says that they are, the proof of which redemption is the physical resurrection and transformation of the body. First Corinthians is very clear on this as well. It says we won't just be given another body, but the body that we currently have, i.e. our vile bodies will be changed into a glorious body. So it's saying the, the body is the same body, but it has been reconstituted and perfected. And again, our prototype for this is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have no other demonstration that would give us hope. And that's just why it's the cornerstone of the faith, that, that true evidence that was both physical and spiritual. Therefore, we can consult the scriptures and see that a physical, tangible Jesus who walked and talked and ate with his disciples prior to his ascension. And since he was resurrected physically, we can expect the same. Jesus himself, after his resurrection, stated a spirit doesn't have flesh and bone as I have, according to Luke 24. Therefore, it's important for us to be super accurate on this from Scripture, where, you know, we're not just wondering if it's a spiritual resurrection. The Bible says exactly what it is and says it in many different ways. Mm, so good. And this is such an important topic. Uh, Joe, I'm just going to give you an opportunity to even chime in on it, because, again, uh, you know, Bible-believing Christians do believe in a physical resurrection, but there are many people that just spiritualize this whole, you know, event. So so how would you answer this question? Well, I think it's really important that Christians realize that we will have a physical body in the resurrection and in the afterlife. In fact, in 1 John, he's very clear when he says that this is the test of orthodoxy. And what is the test? It's the physical resurrection of the dead. Notice what he says in 1 John 4, 2. He says, by this, you know, the spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. So notice that John gives the physical uh, test for 
orthodoxy within Christian doctrine as the resurrection of Christ. And I say the resurrection because he uses the word sarx, the Greek, which is the flesh. And if you don't believe that they have come, that Jesus has come in the flesh, and that's in the perfect tense in the Greek. It means past completed action with abiding results into the present. And so it's saying, unless you believe that Christ came in his physical body in the flesh and continues today in the flesh, you're of the doctrine of Antichrist. In fact, if people deny Christ still has a physical body in heaven today, which he does, they're called post-resurrectional docetists. They deny the physicality of Jesus himself. But John doesn't stop in 1 John 4, 2. He actually, in his second epistle, in verse 7, he repeats a similar claim of the test for orthodoxy. Notice what he says there. He says, for many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. So it's very important to realize that John here is using the present participle when he talks about as coming. Okay, so it's saying that unless you confess that Jesus presently and continuously has a physical body, the same body that died and rose again in heaven today, you're of the doctrine of Antichrist. So it's more than simply saying, oh, I believe that Jesus came as a man in the first coming. John is telling us we need to believe that he rose again and continues to live in that physical body today. And that's truly what we mean about a resurrection. And granted, there are changes in the body. There's not a change of the body. That's reincarnation. There's changes in the body. And so what kind of changes are there? 1 Corinthians 15 lays out those changes. But the changes occur in the secondary qualities of the human nature, not in the primary qualities. You see, second qu- secondary qualities are what you have. They're not necessarily essential to your nature, but the primary quality is essential to your nature. The primary qualities are who and what you are, who you are, your Joe or Luke or Brian, what you are is human and humans have a body, soul, spirit unity that makes them complete. And that's what they'll live in forever. You see, the secondary qualities you're going to get back, and that's what's going to change. In 1 Corinthians 15, that's what he describes. All these secondary qualities that will be glorified, if you will. The primary qualities will remain who and what you are through eternity, and this applies to Jesus too. So it's important that we don't reject the physicality and the bodily resurrection, and that Jesus still has his body today in heaven. So good, so good, and a a great uh, point to clarify. Well, gentlemen, before we end and give our listeners book recommendations, I I just want to quickly, just quickly, Go back to the historical evidences um, that is portrayed in the Gospels. And and Joe and Luke, you both have done marvelous jobs giving us those. But there's some unique qualities I think we need to bring out that um, that really, you know, show that this was unique, kind of out of the ordinary. Of course, 
we know a resurrection is out of the ordinary. First of all, the disciples and people of the first century knew that people didn't rise from the dead. So they weren't they weren't idiots. They they understood that. But the the gospel records really give us some unique insights that show that this wasn't just people making something up according to the status quo of the day. And the first is that that women were involved in this. And and then the second is that I, one of you, Luke or Joe, you you alluded to this, that a group of men were willing to die for this news. And there was no way that they would be able to collaborate this perfect story and then willing to die for a lie. So let's just let's just briefly again, we don't have to go into too much detail, but but Luke, I'll, I'll turn it over to you. What What is unique about women being involved in in this whole narrative, this whole gospel account, why why would this rub people um, wrong in in the first century? It's it's a really good call out, and there's a number of authors who actually approach it from this viewpoint, and that is in the first century, and this is not something we're saying because we agree with this, but in the first century, the testimony of a woman was not considered valuable in a court of law. There were a number of limitations about what legal actions a woman could take, what um, contributable actions a woman could take that were reliable. And this was just the way things were set up. And this is not just true of the Jewish culture. This is sort of very broadly based. And so the idea that women were the first ones to discover the empty tomb and the gospel writers particularly write that ironically becomes a great boost to the credibility because they were willing to tell the truth about who discovered it. But if their main concern was trying to prove in some contrived manner that it happened, they certainly would not have chosen a woman or women, plural, to be the ones who first brought this knowledge to the disciples. And yet that remains included and it, it's a it's a huge boost again to the veracity of the claim as as to that this is the way it really happened, and that if they had wanted it to be anything else, they wouldn't have included that. Yeah, and that's and I like that you said that. That's that's a very important indicator of the truthfulness of this account because if they were writing to the customs, they would have dismissed the women. They would have said it was a group of men who showed up. So women were important. So secondly, Joe, let's let's turn it over to you. Let's talk about the men. You know, the, these men, as you both have, have said, testified. They were eyewitnesses to this. Why couldn't they have just lied or collaborated in some sort of, you know, hoax? And, you know, why is their end, you know, their deaths, very a very important indicator of the truthfulness of this resurrection narrative? Mm. Their martyrdom is a testimony to their sincerity of their message of the resurrection. And no one dies for what they know to be a lie. Now, some people respond to that and say, well, we have Muslim suicide bombers and all kinds of people who who die for for their cause, too. It doesn't prove it to be true, necessarily. And, and that is correct, because what I'm saying here is that no one dies for what they know to be a lie. But if you asked the Muslim suicide bombers, they would say that I believe what I'm doing to be true and for a true cause. 
But nobody dies or gives their life, especially in the ways that the disciples die, uh, in cruel and uh, bloody deaths, uh, torturous oftentimes, uh, Peter, tradition says, was crucified upside down. Uh, John, tradition has it that he was uh, banished to the Isle of Patmos. Um, you have, but he didn't die. He was the only apostle that didn't die and the youngest of the 12 that outlived everybody uh, in the end. Uh, but you have these um, testimonies of these apostles going to their grave with no uh, recanting of their message of the gospel or of the resurrection of the Christ. And so you have these guys being a martyr or a witness, and that's what martyr means. It means a witness. And to give your life uh, for the Lord is a witness to the testimony that you truly believe what you're preaching. Your talk matches your walk, so to speak. So nobody dies for what they know to be false. Uh, but a charlatan at his deathbed, uh, we're going to kill you if you don't tell us what happened. They'll end up spilling the beans. They will tell you what happened. They don't want to lose their life over something that's not true. But that's not what we see among the disciples. Uh, they all freely gave their life for what they believed to be a resurrected Lord. Yeah, and I, I've heard modern um, versions of what I'm about to say, but let's just pretend that Joe, you, Luke, and I were at my house one night and we were just having fun and we said, hey, we're here in New Mexico. Let's let's make up a story that we saw aliens and that one of us were abducted by this alien. And we spend the next two weeks going over every detail and we're collaborating every facet, making sure that when the reporters come, that our stories are in complete alignment and agreement. Two weeks later, we go to the news, we announce it, it's broadcast, reporters start coming, and invariably our stories are in complete alignment and people are saying, oh, wow, th these guys must have really had it. There's, there's no fault in, in their testimony until someone shows up at my door and they put a gun to my head and say, listen, I'm either going to shoot you or you're going to tell me the truth about this. You better believe I'm going to say, okay, you're right. Um, this whole thing was made up. We collaborated our stories. I'm not willing to die for a lie is what you just said, Joe. But what we find with each disciple is that they were willing to give their life. And in the case of John, willing to go imprisoned and continue to tell this story regardless of the consequences because they were willing to die for the truth. And the resurrection is clearly historically verifiable. It, it, it is, uh, has evidence behind it. And what we get is through these men and women uh, who were willing to lay down their life for this. So, so, so important. And I thank you both, uh, Luke and Joe, for that answer. But as we normally do, guys, we we end with some book recommendations. So, Luke, let's begin with you. What what recommendations would you have for our listeners? I'm just going to go with one because it's a little bit of a read, and that is Cold Case Christianity by J. Warner Wallace. And it's a fellow who was a cold case detective in L.A. for many, many years. He was a devout atheist. And he writes particularly about how he applies a modern investigative practice to 
the evidence that's presented within the Gospels. Fascinating read and um, great encouragement. Hmm. Joe, what about you? What books would you recommend for our listeners? Well, there's two very readable books. Uh, One is theological, and that is The Battle for the Resurrection by Norman Geisler. It goes over all the arguments, it gives responses, and it's written in a short, terse way where you can uh, really understand what he's saying. It's a small paperback. I think our listeners would would love that. And then there's The Case for the Resurrection from uh, Lee Strobel. He approaches it more as an investigative journalist, and and that would be very exciting to read as well. Great. All three of those are just great, great books, so thanks for that. Well, Joe, Luke, fabulous information, such an important topic. I thank you both for joining us here on Paradis. Oh, thanks for being with us, Brian and Luke. It's always good to be on with you. Always a pleasure to be on with you guys as well. Well, join us next time as we continue our discussion and answer the question, is the Bible the Word of God? Until next time, proclaim the gospel, equip the saints, and defend the faith.